It's my great honour in this podcast to speak with Stan Grant, international affairs analyst at the ABC and award-winning author of books like Talking to My Country, Australia Day, and most recently with The Falling of the Dusk. In this wide-ranging conversation, we grapple with the big ideas, thinking oneself free through writing and philosophy, the poisonous relationship between history and identity, the return of China, and the challenges facing liberal democracy from within. Stan finishes with a clarion call to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds for Australia's Indigenous peoples. So welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast, um, everyone. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. So I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining this conversation on Zoom from the traditional lands of the Wongal and Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And it's with great, great honour that I introduce today Stan Grant. Uh, Stan Grant is a Wiradjuri and Camilleroy man. He's the international affairs analyst at the ABC, previously anchor and senior correspondent for C CNN and Asia and the, and the Middle East. And he's one of Australia's most interesting and insightful public intellectuals, a man who I think interprets the nation to itself in books like Tears of Strangers, Talking to My Country, Australia Day, and most recently with The Falling of the Dusk. And it's in the spirit of that final book, particularly, that we gather here today to share a conversation about liberal democracy, China, and the way forward to grapple with Australia's dark history. So Stan, thank you so much for, for joining me. What an honor. Oh, look, it's my pleasure, Jack. And um, you know, where you're sitting there looks like my house, you know, books <laughs> piled up to the ceiling about to fall over. Um, I can see a couple on yourself there that uh, <laughs> that I've, I've got myself. I think it's one with, is it Emil Durkheim over your shoulder? Yeah, it is, it is, it is. <laughs> I can see Keating there and one of my books, which is which is always yeah. nice to see. Talk, talking about country. Yeah. We've got Duncan yeah, Iverson yeah. as well. You might know Duncan Iverson. Yeah. Oh, of course, of um, course. D D Duncan's written a lot about liberal yeah. democracy and indigenous rights and he's a good good friend of mine but yeah yours looks by the side of my bed man it is <laughs> we can barely move in our house for just books about to fall over you know but i feel more comfortable about the state of my room then i can leave well it that's it. the way to live you know <laughs> you live in the world of ideas you live in the world of books they've got to yeah. they've got to just surround you you've got to be immersed in them you know mm. I mean, it's all i think about is, mm. is reading and writing and thinking yeah mm. Let's start, let's start with the thinker in you then, Stan, because it's, mm. it's a part of your public life and your personality that the rest of Australia probably doesn't get to see as much. I mean, on the one hand, you're the yeah. reporter, you know, you're, yeah. you're speaking the truth to the nation, but you are, I think, in many of your writings, you identify as a thinker, as a writer, yeah. as a as It's a the most philosopher. important thing to me, Jack, is, is philosophy. I don't think if you don't have a, an understanding of philosophy, the ideas that have given birth, particularly, I think, to our modern world, mm. and then as a result of that, the people who speak back to that idea of modernity. If you don't understand that, I think you're stumbling around in the dark. Um, I, I was drawn to it, uh, I think, because of who I am and my own background. There's that wonderful line from Franz Fanon who said, mm. oh, my, uh, oh, my body, it makes me a man who asks questions. Um, and, and because of who I am and because I'm an Indigenous person, and born into Australia with all the history that that involves, I've had to try to think myself free and to engage with the big thinkers, to engage with ideas, to, to, to grapple with ideas, the contradictions of ideas and my own contradictions. And then, of course, as a man going out into the world and trying to interpret and understand the world, journalism was not enough. Journalism was mm -hmm. a 
you know, was, was the first draft of history, but it doesn't tell you about what has created this. There's no, journalism doesn't have a lot of space for ideas because the events overshadow the ideas. Mm. And I just immersed myself in, in reading and trying to understand what led us to this point and what created mm. this. So philosophy, reading and thinking is just absolutely essential to, to who I am. Let's start with Hegel then, Stan, because, yeah. I mean, this book is what's called With the Falling of the Dusk, and that's a phrase from Hegel. I believe the phrase mm. is, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with yes. the falling of the dusk. That would so, gain wisdom with the falling of the night, yeah. Yeah, so what, what does Hegel mean to you, and why have you chosen that mm. particular aphorism, that little piece of philosophy, to guide uh, your journey through these themes in this book? Hegel is the great thinker of history the great thinker of freedom, the great thinker of recognition. You know, he, he, he coined that master-slave dialectic, that idea of the master and the slave who are both tied to each other and trapped within that relationship um, where they, you know, the, the master tries to hold superiority over the slave and the slave withholds the recognition of the master and they're both trapped in that. And Hegel, of course, imagined that there would be an ethical state, a moment that we would reach in that quest for freedom when we would have no need of the master and the slave. Beyond that, of course, he identifies that the master and the slave is the contradiction within all of us as well. It's not just mm. a, an outward thing. It's a very inward thing. You know, many people think of Hegel as being a sort of thinker of synthesis, and there is that pithy sort of um, line that, you know, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, as if that describes or captures Hegel's thought. He didn't really speak in those terms. It was much more about contradiction. And mm. yes, there was a dialectic, and the dialectic could be a, a thesis, antithesis, th synthesis. But of course, the synthesis then forms its own thesis, which then creates its own antithesis, and so on, and so on, and so on. Mm. So I was really drawn to Hegel as a way of trying to grapple with ideas of becoming, rather than rather than ideas of fixed identity because he is someone who sees us very much in terms of what the Greeks would call telos you know that mm. idea of some of some forward movement of some progress mm. you know there is that idea of Heraclitus that you cannot cross the same river twice because you change and the river change and mm. what is the river anyway and um, you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to that sense of of change propelling more change and a process of becoming and not being fixed in time. And I think Hegel, more than any post-French Revolution era philosopher, defines our age, he shadows our age, the idea of the modern state, um, the idea uh, of tyranny is, is drawn from Hegel's writings and thinking. He believed that tyranny was part of the journey towards liberation. Um, hence, he's, you know, the way that he saw the French Revolution. Yeah. Um, and and so, so I think he, he really frames our age. He shapes our age. He, he attracts me as a thinker. I'm drawn to the contradictions. He's very dense and hard to read, but there are moments of just absolutely sort of majestic poetry, hence with the falling of the dusk. And then, of course, more in more contemporary terms, 
it was the starting point for Francis Fukuyama's declaration of the end of history after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. And that this signal for Fukuyama, the triumph of liberal democracy, in Hegelian terms, we had reached that ethical state where the master and the slave theoretically could be free of the bonds that hold both of them down. So, you know, there, there was there was a lot in that, um, a lot in that for me to chew on in, in the writing of this book, that beautiful phrase that framed the book and gave it, I think, a sense of its of its poetry that I tried to capture in the book. But then also they're grappling with those ideas, ideas of change and progress and whether those things ultimately do lead us to a place of liberation. And I guess it's also what gives the book, Stan, its inherent sense of tragedy too. I mean, you're dealing with some very yes. serious things. And what has always surprised me about Hegel, and I went back and read him this week because I've never totally gotten him. He's very dense yeah. and difficult to grapple with. But is that he's not actually a predictive thinker. He's no, not he's trying not. to say that he knows what that end state is, is he? He's trying to say that no. when you look back retrospectively, yes. things will make sense. They will have a dialectical impulse. They will yes. make up a structured yes. kind of uh, purpose that drives towards some end that I do not yet know. Yes. And, uh, and I think that's what it means to live in events. And that is what this book is about. It's about your life among great events the world yes. over. And it's um, something that really struck me about this book, Stan, is that you don't make an attempt to predict outcomes no. either. You no. firmly I, I, I think that's folly. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, um, I, I, I don't like, and I suppose this is a Hegelian influence mm. as well, I don't like certainty. I don't yeah. like certainty because I think certainty leads to the gulag and the gas chamber. Mm. It's why I recoil from ideas of identity. You know, I, I, I don't like the word. I don't like what it conjures. I don't like yeah. the modern sort of manifestation of that word that so easily then leads us to tribalism, um, to this mm. idea that we are defined not by who we are, but who we are not or what we are not. I think that's one of the hallmarks of this modern age. And I think when you marry the quest for identity to belong somewhere mm. um, with grievance and historical grievance, then you can clearly see where the fault lines of our world are, are lie. Mm. So I, I don't like certainty. So predictions are just, I'm not interested in that. Um, I'm interested in something else Hegel wrote about, and that is that that journey towards freedom, as he saw it, that arc of history that he believes deposits us at some point where we may be able to look back and see that journey and understand where we have come and that quest for freedom can also put us on the highway of despair. Mm. And he wrote about that. He was a thinker of despair. Um, and, and, and I think that's what I'm on is the, the highway of despair. Um, my journey through the world, my journey through my own history, my family's mm. history, grappling with the legacy of that, the, the resentment that that history can bring, and yet the desire to be free of the chains of that history, um, to have a place of belonging, but not a place of permanent, essentialized identity, to try to interrogate uh, ideas of race, um, blackness, whiteness, class, uh, all of these things that tend to want to put us into those boxes. And, and I, I, think, I think it's dangerous. I think certainty, I think anything that is predictive, anything that is utopian, anything mm. that is identity-based, we know where that leads. History tells us where that leads. It leads to the gulag and it leads to the mm. gas chamber. Mm. It is leading right now to... Black people in America being killed on the streets by police, 
with white American Appalachian factory workers blowing their brains out, hooked on opioids and full of resentment at a country that has that has abandoned them in their view. And it leads to the the, the concentration camps, the re-education camps of that that China is putting millions of Uyghurs into. Certainty, uh, identity is a dangerous thing. And I think predictions feed into that. Mm. I think you wrote somewhere, I can't remember which book, but I think the phrase went something like, history is the poison in the blood of our identity, something like that. Oh, was it, yes, was that yes, phrase? yes, and, exactly. Uh, is that, yeah, so tell me about your history, Stan, because I do see that you were drawn to Hegel because he mm. sees history and freedom as being intention. And you yes. used that beautiful phrase before. You said that you want to think yourself free. Yes. What does that mean in the context of your own personal history, the history of your peoples? Is history always a ball and chain kind of game? Or it can, is it? It can be. Yeah. It can be. T- tell me about that, because how do you think yourself free from that weight? It's, it's so easy. It's so tempting and seductive to identify yourself with that historical wound. You know, Nietzsche talked about people being consumed by an historical fever. You know, Nietzsche, of course, that great philosopher of sort of critique of liberalism and modernity mm. and what he saw as the tyranny of the weak. And I think he identified that 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 historical grievance, that ressentiment, as he talked mm. about, um, that desire to return forever to that wound that cannot and should not and will not ever heal because the wound is the source of your identity. It may give you a place of belonging. It may give you a sense of even power. And in our contemporary times, we see how that power of historical grievance and victimhood can be can be wielded. But ultimately, it is not a place of freedom. Ultimately, mm. it is a tyranny of the weak. There is a weakness in being trapped in that. And yet at the same time, I, I know that it has shaped me. I'm a product of invasion, colonisation, empire. It plays out still in the lives of the people in my family. It is in my bones. It is in my blood. It is the... You know, what I, what I, it's my mother's milk. It's, it's what I was raised on, those stories of never forgetting, never forgetting what happened to us. So I grapple with the sort of liberal impulse to mm. park history, to leave history in the past, to forgive, or if even, even better, to forget that forgetting is part of the liberal project. Um, I grapple with that, with also knowing full well that to drink from the toxic well of history can lead us to violence. I see that all around the world. So I, I, I struggle with those, those impulses. I struggle with the history that is alive in me. I struggle with wanting to forget and forgive because it feels like letting people off the hook. I struggle with that idea of how of what, what restorative justice may look like. And I think the only way for me to try to work through those things is to write is to find a place to put mm. that, to put mm. those ideas down on the page and grapple with those ideas. There's a, a bit of the book that I, I write and I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, had, a, I've had such a, a mixed relationship with this writer who's such a compelling writer, but Jean-Amory, mm. who's a French philosopher and writer, of course, was previously Hans Meyer and was a, a survivor of Auschwitz. He was a survivor of the death camps. Um, who absolutely refused to forgive or forget, who absolutely saw resentment as a virtue. 
he would have rejected Nietzsche's idea that res that resentment was somehow a tyranny of the weak. He mm. saw it as virtuous. He said that there are things that you do not put into the cold storage of history. And he held on to that resentment. Um, he also ended up taking his own life in a Salzburg hotel room. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the likes of Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, who rather than hold on to that grievance and resentment, which could have set fire to South Africa at the fall of apartheid, they looked to build a new nation free of the bonds of that history. Mm. They reckoned with their history. They had a truth and reconciliation commission, but it was not to prosecute the history. It was history that would set you free. It was truth-telling that would heal. And I'm attracted to that because I see that uh, as, as something that is noble, um, something that is holy. Yet I also recognise within that that there is something that lets the perpetrator off the hook. Yes. So I, I grapple with all of those things, you know, resentment versus forgiveness, hope versus you know, um, resentment, um, holding mm. on to the past, yet also wanting to look to the to the future, having progress, um, being a part of modernity that should set us free from those chains of our history or our faith or our traditions or our families, but at the same time knowing that without those things, I am lost in the world. Um, so it's it's part of my intellectual and spiritual journey to grapple with who I am in the world and what has put me here. And it's a dialectic, isn't it? It's the struggle it that counts. It is absolutely a dialectic. Yeah. And that's and the thing, yeah. And there's that, there's and that phrase. it should never end, yeah. Jack. It should never end. It's not something that we reach a conclusion mm. on. Um, I don't mm. seek the certainty of those. I live in all the uncertainty of that, mm. in the contradictions and the paradox of that. Mm. That's that's the fascinating place for me. That, that is freedom. It's like what Kant says, enlightenment yeah. is a thing for oneself, right? It's um yes. There's also the, there's that phrase in one of your books too when you talk about you're torn between the Australia of your head and the Australia of your heart, yeah. <clears throat> right? And I think, I mean, I recognise that feeling in a very different way, but intellectual life and intellectual conclusions and processes and journeys, though they can be all-consuming and though they can hold us in that space in between in a noble way, yes. emotions and personal experience, history, can yes. often undo that in an instant, and, Absolutely. you know, that's the epilogue of your book in Australia Day, right? Because you spend the entire book yes. doing this intellectual journey. And it's that powerful line treading between renewal and resentment, right? Between yes. South Africa and Nietzsche. And it's yes. you then in the epilogue, you say all of this, it falls through in my hands on Australia yes. Day 2019. Exactly. So, how can those how yeah. can those things hold when I look into the eyes of my own people and I see such just unrelenting deep sorrow and pain and i know that in the face of that pain my people offer love mm. all of those thoughts all of those words all of that philosophizing it falls away when i look into those eyes and i just see the reality of what the world can do to us a place beyond words um and 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 i'm i'm aware of that it doesn't mean that the next day i don't mm. pick up that book again and I'm back in the ring and I'm trying to find mm. a way to think myself free of this. But I'm aware that there is mm. a lived condition and that the, the heart, that sense of who I am, where I am from and to whom I belong, mm. will always, in a, in a sense, rule over the head. 
my ability to conceptualize, contextualize, to think about these things, to look at these things in the abstract, mm. um, to know that emotions, as you say, absolutely. Uh, was was it um, was it David Hume that talked about emotions basically ruling over logic, essentially, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know? Reason it, is the slave of the passions. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Um, so it's impossible to to separate myself from those things, but. That's my quest. That's that's yeah. the grail for us, yeah. isn't it? It is. And that's, you know, I want to get into the kind of the, the content of liberal democracy in China. But something that's always fascinated about uh, fascinated me about you, Stan, is that, you know, you are a public thinker who people try to put into boxes. No, I hate boxes. And wh- yeah. whether, whether it's the politician, whether it's the activist, yeah. you know, and then you time and time again, you write it literally. I am not a politician. I'm a storyteller. Yes. Is yes. this what you mean by storytelling, sitting in that space in between, you know, as Eliot says, holding the fragments together that I shore against my ruin, taking together the parts of my inheritance, no matter how fractured, to hold a space wherein I can have that journey. Is that yes. what you see your role as being in Absolutely. Australia? Is that what it is? Yeah. I live in exile. James yeah. Joyce, when James Joyce said in, in Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, I go in search of the unconstructed conscience of my race. What a powerful thing. To forge the smithy of my soul, yeah. Exactly, to leave Ireland, Mm. to go on that journey, to look back at Ireland and to try to think yourself free of Mm. finian grievance, even though you know absolutely that it's in your bones. Um, Benelong, that remarkable character in our history, who gets on a, on a ship and goes to England with people who had invaded his country three years before to leave all of the certainty, the only thing he had ever known, to go in search of the unconstructed conscience of his race. Um, James Baldwin, who goes to France and says, I refuse to be a Negro, let alone a Negro writer. Mm. Not that I'm not black. I will not be whatever label or whatever you want to put box that you want to put me into. Toni Morrison, who said that it was her job as a writer to think free in a wholly racialized, sexualized and genderized world. Free. Mm. Franz Kafka, who said, how can I identify with the Jews? I don't identify with myself. <laughs> That's me. That's me. I I want to live in all of that uncertainty and ambiguity. Mm. I want to live free of those boxes. I love the exile. There's another philosopher you may be familiar with, but I've been very drawn to a lot of the French philosophers of identity, particularly those from Martinique um, Mm. and and, uh, Edouard Glissant, who's Mm. just very influential to me. And as he, of course, was influenced by um, Gilles Deleuze and maybe there's a bit of Derrida in there as well. But certainly with Glissant is that idea of the poetics of relation, the, uh, that, that rhizomatic identity rather than a rooted identity, yeah. that even on the slave ship, we are on a journey to something that creates something new. Um, the creolization of identity. That isn't a blancmange. It isn't something that is some, you know, some sort of vague idea of, of, of a melting pot. Something that is absolutely real, is, but it is not fixed. It's not essentialized. Mm. It can't easily be trapped. It can't, it's not a binary. It's not black. It's not white. Um, because I know that is not how we live. Yeah. That is not who we are. Um, so I'm, I am that writer of exile. And, you know, when, when I came to write with the falling of the dusk, um, 
you know, I, I, I write in a, in a burst. It's like a dam breaking for me. You know, I, I get the ideas together. I ruminate. I think about the, the ideas. I read and read and read and, mm. and it formulates in my mind. And then the dam bursts. It just, it just falls onto the page. And, and I write very, very quickly in the first draft. What you read in the book is the first draft of the book. That's, okay, the, book. Right. That's the one. Wow. Um, uh, but I was, I was about to start and I was, you know, we always second guess ourselves and wonder about, you know, how we start and what sort of writer <laughs> we want to be and, and, in, you know, intellectualize those things. And I was talking to a friend of mine, Richard Flanagan, the, the author, yeah. novelist, um, great, great friend of mine, a great writer. And, and he said something that was just so obvious to me. And I said, you know, I'm really wondering, how should I do this? Where do I start? What do I want to say? And he said, he said, Stan, you've already got a voice. He said, you are the writer of catharsis. Mm. That's what you are. It mm. breaks open in you. Mm. You are the writer of catharsis. Mm. And then bang, I was away. I was on that train to China, looking out at this landscape, wrestling with the history I was dragging with me and the history of this land and wondering about that dissonance between the West and liberalism that on the one hand is a tyrant and on the other hand is a temptress and this, this other side of history, Aboriginal Australia, China, mm. the, the Muslim world, um, how we interact with that. It all just fell onto the page once I, again, accepted the reality that I don't live in certainty. I live in catharsis and I live in exile. And that's, I mean, this does strike me every time I read your work, Stan, because you are... Your primary identity, you are you are the writer in exile, you are the thinker, mm. but yet you have chosen to commit to a career at the highest levels in affairs. You are in the grip of affairs. You are in yeah. the grip of events. Do you yeah. feel a tension between your natural disposition to thought, deep reflection, yes. slowliness, and the fast, quick pace yeah. of, of reporting, of political commentary? And we're going to get to some of those spaces in a second, but do you yeah. feel that dissonance? I do. Um, yeah. Journalism doesn't answer those questions for me. Yeah. I try to inform my analysis and my journalism with a much deeper and much more complex mm. understanding of those of those events. Um, when I reported war, it wasn't just the body count. It wasn't just the spectacular bombing or explosion. It was what put those people there? What put someone there to put a, to a suicide vest on, strap it on and blow themselves and everybody else up? I want, and, I, and I do slide that in. I infuse that into everything that I do. But you're right. There is a, a struggle. It's a very tight-fitting suit because mm. journalism is once-over-lightly. Um, even, even the best of it um, can leave me feeling... Um, unfulfilled, you know, uh, as if it's very shallow. But I, I do understand that there are different layers in the world and there are different ways of operating and working and journalism has its place. And if you can bring a little bit more depth to it, all well and good, but it does have the ability to reach people. Mm. It has its place, but it is not, it is not the finishing point. So for me, I, I've seen sort of walking two roads in a sense is that I can work in this sort of fast-paced events-based news environment where, you know, it's full of hot takes and, and quick analysis and all of those things, but then pull back and ask myself deeper questions and write books and, and, and give speeches and lectures. And um, mm. at the moment I've managed to sort of live with that schizophrenia, but, <laughs> but it becomes increasingly more difficult. And I suppose as I get older, 
I feel anything that takes me away from or interrupts that deep reflection, thinking, reading, just feels like an imposition. So many times I come to work in journalism and I think I'd really rather be in my study just wading through books, thinking, going for walks, getting my thoughts together, writing things. Um, but I also know that people read my books and come to those ideas because they see me in the media. And so it aids my other work, I think, to, to some degree. Is there a deeper sense of responsibility or purpose that keeps you in that space? Like what makes you follow what's going on in China so closely, report on, you know, behind yeah. the wall. Why, there's got to be something keeping you oh, there, yeah. right? What, what is that? I'd be very interested to hear that. Well, it's, it's to, uh, very, very simply, it is to keep us alive. Yeah. Um, because we are on the precipice of something that could be truly catastrophic. I have an understanding, I have a knowledge, I have a lived experience, I have a deep philosophical understanding of our world, of what has created our world, of China, of the West, of conflict, what leads to conflict, of identity, of history. And, and I feel a duty, a responsibility to try to put that into the public domain, yeah. to try to use any opportunity I can to deepen that, that dialogue and, and that discussion, to bring mm. more nuance, to like, try to look at things out of that sort of um, black and white you know, us versus them um, sort of prism. So, I, I, you know, it's very important mm. to be engaged in that conversation right now. I mean, we are, we are potentially sleepwalking to war. We're at a point where we can't talk to China, the single biggest engine of economic growth in the world, a country that has defied history, that has made, made people rich but not set them free. Um, a country that is authoritarian yet embraces market liberal, you know, capitalism. Um, it's, it's a paradox. Um, it's a big country. It's an increasingly assertive, even aggressive country. And, uh, and, and I look at this moment now and think if we're not having really deep discussion about this, if mm -hmm. we can't approach this with some real politic um, rather than a, a sort of utopian idea of liberal universalism that will either crush China or, or destroy the Communist Party or somehow they will see the error of our, their ways and become like us. Um, that folly has long, long passed. Um, so I, I see my role, particularly when it comes to China, as just being in the mix with a voice, trying to add some layers of understanding and move beyond the sort of this, this very simple, simplistic Cold War back to the evil empire, China must be stopped um, narrative that I think um, is potentially a very dangerous one. Let's let's sit a bit with China then and go a bit deeper and think about its history. Because, you know, reading this book, China makes yeah. up many of the chapters. It's one of yeah. the central themes and places. And like I hadn't engaged a lot with the country's history until reading your book. And it's only after reading it that I've gone off and started reading Richard McGregor, everything I can get yeah. my hands on to understand the national character. So Stan, yeah. could you walk us through very briefly, what the particular historical grievance is at the heart of this return? Because you say that China is yeah. a country haunted by history. And Absolutely. you talk about Mao Zedong, you talk about Deng Xiaoping, Xi Jinping, and how they're all kind of, as part of this Hegelian dialectic, moving towards yes. some end that they know already, that they don't actually, you know, yet acknowledge to not know. <laughs> um, yes. What is that history? What is that humiliation? 
What is that it's, national um, character? You cannot understand China, modern China, yeah. um, without understanding the fall of the Qing Empire and what that set off inside the country. You know, China for thousands of years had been, by virtue of its population, the most powerful country in the world, the biggest economy mm. in the world. Before the Industrial Revolution, um, population size uh, basically um, was an indicator of economic strength. You were a big country, lots of people, you produced more things, you were the richest country. The Industrial Revolution changed all of that, of course, and suddenly this tiny island off Europe became a global empire. When China was usurped from that position of being at the centre of the world, they called themselves the Middle Kingdom. With the fall of the Qing Empire, it ushered in a really dark night of the soul. How could China be defeated by Britain in the Opium Wars? Mm. Now Britain occupied Chinese territory. Hong Kong had been lost. The Qing had fallen. What was it about China that made them so weak? And of course, you know, the Han majority looked at the Qing, who were basically the Manchu foreigners themselves, and saw that they are the ones who had led China to destruction. How do we strengthen the game, that sense of what it is to be Han Chinese? So we saw the rise of a, of a Han nationalism. We saw this sort of introspection about what China's place was in the world, what it meant to be Chinese. A lot of the influential thinkers arriving, arising out of that period of the fall of the Qing Empire and the lead up to the, the revolution in 1911 and then on from there, a lot of those thinkers were looking at the West and saying, if the West has been able to humble us, what is it that we need to learn from them? And there were various writers wanting to flirt with the idea of becoming more Western, you know, going through what, what Japan had been through with the Meiji Restoration and opening up to the outside world. Um, but they also recognised that there was this deep wound, humiliation, domination that they had experienced at the hands of the West and that the West, you know, saw them as inferior, mocked them, um, and, and those things really, I think, led ultimately to what we see with the, the formation of the Communist Party and the Communist Revolution. And when, CG, when uh, Mao Zedong stands up in 1949 at Tiananmen Square and he declares the victory of the Communist Revolution and he says, the Chinese people have stood up. When you think about those words. He did not say the Communist Party has won. He didn't say, we are victorious. He said, the Chinese people have stood up. This was avenging that humiliation. So when they talk about the 100 years of humiliation, they talk about the opium wars of the 1840s and, the, and up until 1949 with the victory of the communist revolution. And then after that, of course, we start to see Mao passes to Deng Xiaoping and Deng Xiaoping opens China up to the world but doubles down on the power of the Communist Party, even turning his military on his own people in Tiananmen Square to crush democracy. And now we see the third iteration of that. Xi Jinping, who sees himself completing the revolution of returning China, not just, not just redeeming China's honour inside the country, but returning China to the apex of global power. And at every step in the way, uh, there is uh, an understanding that this draws from that deep historical wound, that the Chinese modern identity is forged in that humiliation, that they will never forget that, and that they will never be weakened and humbled again. I don't think you can understand modern China 
without understanding that historical narrative. And yet when I was there and when I read so much about China, it's not something that we hear a lot of mm. still. People talk about the economy and people talk about politics and people talk about the potential for war and conflict and they focus on the individuals and Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping and Deng Xiaoping. And, but very few, and I think this is because China is still interpreted so often by Western thinkers, they don't get history. The West doesn't get history. Wow, yeah. West leaves history behind. And if you don't understand history, I don't think you could possibly understand modern China. I see, because this is the theme that comes up in your book again, or your all your books. It's that liberalism has a history problem, right? If yeah. you're so focused on the future and the end of history yep. and wanting to close off that entire you know, experience, um, you actually blind yourself to the very real grievances and sufferings that drive people, right? And it's yeah. a question that I have coming away from reading your book, Stan, is this humiliation, is this sourced from the Chinese people themselves? Is this something that they live with day to day or is it promoted and cultivated by the party, by its leadership? Both. It's both yeah, at once. Both. Okay. It's real. It is yeah. real. Yeah. Um, you talk to ordinary Chinese and they know it. Listen, People in China have relatives, grandparents, great-grandparents who were slaughtered by the Japanese. Yeah. You know, they would look at Hong Kong before the handover and even after, and they would see it as a scar on the soul. They would see this thing as a, as a symbol of their humiliation. Mm. They felt abandoned by the Americans during World War II, left to, to fight the Japanese on Chinese soil um, on their own, uh, because it prolonged the war, because it bogged the Japanese down and allowed the Americans and the Allies to get on top of Japan and the other Pacific theatres. Um, there is a deep, deep sense of resentment. It is real. They have paid for this in blood. But at the same time, the Communist Party is smart. What levers do they have to pull? Their um, legitimacy does not come from the ballot box. Their legitimacy resides in their ability to make people rich. Um, and because they're not making people free, the other part of that legitimacy is to bind them to a sense of Chinese nationalism, that we were the humiliated people. We are, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox because it is, on the one hand, we are a people of thousands of years of history. We are the rightful rulers of the world. We are the middle kingdom. The emperor is the sun king. And on the other hand, we were this victim. We were defeated. We were humiliated. And the only thing that has restored our glory is the Communist Party. So pledge allegiance to the Communist Party. Mm. Make you rich. You don't need that Western freedom. You don't need that Western liberalism. That's decadent. That's weak. We're Chinese. We will avenge that humiliation. We'll be great again. You know, it's a very powerful narrative. It is real. It is experienced. It is felt but it is also incredibly weaponized and politicized. Because it embraces resentment, right? So it does the resentment, same thing. Resentment, yeah. powerful thing. And so what does the West do with that? Because obviously this is in a context where, as you've written about, yeah. liberal democracy is being challenged by authoritarianism from within, by the, uh, the poison in the blood, by identity politics too. What does liberalism do with that? How do you speak to a country so informed by history when you yourself don't acknowledge history. It's the, Achilles you... heel of, it's the Achilles heel of liberalism. It's its complete inability to understand it. It's liberalism's inability to rehabilitate itself from its own troubled past, its own history. Yeah. Because it is built on the idea of progress, because it is built on this idea that you are 
a linear version of history that, you know, the dead bury the dead. Um, they don't understand that. The West grant cannot possibly get to grips with that. Mm. It struggles to deal with that within inside our own liberal democracies. In Australia, how often do we hear the refrain that Aboriginal people just need to get over it, mm. to move on? It all happened in the past. It did mm. not happen in the past. It is being relived over and over again. You know, that's that's the lesson that's the lesson of history. Um, it is not something that resides uh, in the past. And, and so it, it impedes our understanding and our ability to deal with China and to speak to China. Here's an example. When Scott Morrison, you know, talked about an investigation into COVID, um, which blindsided the Chinese, he'd never picked up the phone and told them this is what he wanted to do or how can we work together on, a, on, on an investigation into the origins of COVID. He just announced it. Well, that sounds like Western country lecturing the Chinese and humiliating them again. Mm. We don't know what these words sound like to Chinese ears. Yeah. And we need to be cognizant of that. We need to understand that. And it, the same applies elsewhere. We don't understand that impulse in the Muslim world, how Islamist political movements Coming from the same source, Islamism is not something that comes in the 8th century. It's not something archaic. It's not something medieval. It was born out of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, that humiliation. Why were we so weak? How did the West ride over the top of us? How do we make ourselves strong again? Well, socialism won't do it. Nationalism won't do it. Secularism won't do it. We need to double down again on, on Islam and let's go to a rigid doctrinaire interpretation of what Islam is. And that'll form the root of our political movement. And then, you know, you start up with the Muslim Brotherhood and you end up with ISIS. Um, so the inability of the West to understand those things impedes our capacity to deal with the blowback that comes from that mm. and to properly be able to talk to countries where history hangs so heavily. And, of course, to deal with the ethical claims of people within our own liberal democracies who have experienced the full brutality of history and are yet to see justice. And see, it's, it's really interesting, Stan, because I've been thinking a lot about Edmund Burke. So I'm writing quite yeah. a lot on Burke right now. And, um, you know, Burke is known as the father of conservatism as being the man who stands up against the French Revolution and you yeah. know, says that this is a betrayal of the human spirit. This is about violence. This is about rational revolution yeah. that undoes our ties to history. But Burke was a far more complex thinker. You know, he was the lone Irishman who stood up in the English House of Commons against Warren yes. Hastings and the British East, you know, East India Company. So the point I'm making this is, Burke's is a liberalism that is attentive to history. He thinks that you can only understand human beings through the purview and perspective of their communities and their historical communities. And I was just, what do you think that thinkers like Kant, Rawls, yes. Hegel, you know, these yes. kinds of friends and guardians that do lead you through your literary journeys. Yes. How can we look to those thinkers to adapt them to these kind of historical concerns? I know it's a yeah. huge question, but... It's really interesting, Edmund Burke, because yeah. you know, he, of course, you're right. You know, history forms us. You know, for, for Burke, you know, liberalism is, is a compact between mm. those, those dead, those living, and those yet to be born. He's fully aware of that. Um, I see that Burkean conservatism, if we can call it conservatism, in in the more strident identity movements of our time. I mean, if mm. I look at the Aboriginal political movements formed around very rigid ideas of Aboriginal identity formed out of historical grievance, well, it sounds very Burkean to me because it's all about tradition. 
and even the reinvention of tradition mm, and tying yourself to community. Um, it's not actually a progressive liberal idea where we unshackle ourselves from our communities. Mm. It is about, mm. you know, it is about joining ourselves mm. with that community. There's a lot of a sort of Burkean influence um, in those in those movements. And then on the other hand, you know, you look at people like uh, the idealists like Kant and, and like Hegel, who again imagine this progress, this cosmopolitanism. You know, yeah. the Kantian idea of a perpetual peace. Mm. Um, and, and that's sort of antithetical in many respects to a tradition or a traditionalism. Mm. And I think that has probably been more influential in the creation of, of this modern understanding of liberalism as something that moves on from history. You hear mm. it in people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Barack Obama, who are very fond of quoting that, that phrase that the, the, arc, the, yeah, the arc of morality <laughs> bends to justice. Yeah. It doesn't bend to justice at all. At mm. all. How can we say that when we look around our world? It may give the appearance of justice, but it certainly doesn't deliver uh, that justice. But I think that's a very Kantian ideal. That's a very Hegelian yeah. ideal. And and then you and, and then you get the blowback to that um, again out of German thinkers, probably Nietzsche. Uh, and then later, of course, those thinkers that arrived uh, arrived after World War II and the Frankfurt School and the Adornos and Horkheimers and Marcuses and, um, you know, before that, even, even the, you know, the likes of Heidegger, um, who were very attentive to that tradition, mm. to that sense of belonging. And the, and the Frankfurt School, who were very aware that progress is a lie. Mm. There is no Kantian perpetual peace as Adorno said, how can you write poetry after Auschwitz? You know, yeah. that, that, that there is no progress after you have just slaughtered six million Jewish people. So, mm. you know, that, that tension between that sort of tradition, mm. history, and that, and that capacity to be free of history, uh, an arc of the moral universe, a perpetual mm. peace, and then those people who arrive... Uh, and say, you know, at the end of that and say, look where this has led us. Mm. It has led us to the Holocaust. You know, it's a, it's a really fascinating philosophical journey of mm. all of these philosophers in one way or another talking back to one another and trying to sort of grapple with their place in the world with all of their histories. Because it is a useful tension because I think, you know, my thought stern is that if thinkers like Hegel and Burke show us that freedom can be found in history. And what I mean by that is if you look to your past with truth and if you look at right dead on in the eye and you choose to do something with that resentment that instead echoes what Kant and Rawls are trying to do, which is try to find an ideal in this history from this experience that we can aim towards. I think that that aim comes with the acknowledgement and it's in that Barack Obama, Martin Luther King kind of often quoted phrase you know, the arc of, the, of history is long, but it bends towards justice, moral arc. Like, I think these thinkers are interested in moral failing. Like, I think the reason they think yes. about ideals, especially Kant, is because they want to expose the gap between who they think they should be and who they are because of their yeah. history. And I, in doing I, I that, what, it, it, yeah. What, one of the issues that I've really grappled with, with a lot of those thinkers, and certainly you take Rawls as a very Kantian thinker, Yeah. you know, and, and, Look what Rawls says. You know, he says we can create a place of neutrality, mm. a, a veil of ignorance, and even within that veil of ignorance, we can accept that there will be inequalities, 
but that the that, that the result of those inequalities um, will derive the the most benefit to the most disadvantaged. Um, but I've really struggled with the idea of liberalism as a space of neutrality. Yeah. Um, it's it's something I cannot get. I mean, it it may look it, it's so very comfortable for Rawls to write that from the ivory towers of Harvard. <laughs> and yes, as a thought as a yeah. thought experiment to say you don't know if you'll be born a female or male or black or white or rich or poor. So how do you construct a society that can take you know can can be attentive to all of those contingencies and regard you know you may find yourself living in you know, in the worst of those circumstances, how would you construct mm. a society that's going to be of the benefit to, to most people? Um, and he would see that as constructing that around some idea of neutrality. I don't think you can arrive at that. I don't think we can park those histories somewhere. It's not so easily done. And, and even the Kantian morality and the cosmopolitanism of Kant, we know, was so very heavily influenced by how he saw the world as well. It was a world where, if it was a cosmopolitan world, that was mm. one where the West was at the centre of that. Mm. And Hegel, who believed that history really only started in Europe, you know, that it really only begets going with the Greeks. Um, and then when history, do, when history, you know, when the sun sets, when the owl of Minerva spreads its wings, mm. it will be in the West. Mm. They can't separate themselves from those sorts of traditions and those ideas. Uh, and yet, we're often presented with this ideal of creating some neutrality. And on the basis of that neutrality, we can deliver justice to the greatest number of people in a liberal society. Yeah. And, it, and it perishes the moment it comes face to face with the reality. Like you said before, all my thinking, all my writing, and I look into the eyes of someone and I know that that's a real lived experience and there's no neutrality in that experience. I guess the question then is, What's the use of ideals in that lived reality? What are the what's the use yeah. of ideals in politics? And you know, the people who come to mind are Dr. King and Gandhi, for example. Yeah. Like these these men, they're philosophers in action, as Burke would call them. That's what his phrase yeah. was. And I think that what they did was they drew on ideals, particularly liberal ideals that had notions of a perpetual peace, of community, of renewal, to try and drive change in front of people who are actually speaking in the name of those ideals, but actually are committing gross abuses. So they kind of worked from within the world of the polity, whether it was in the US or whether it was in India, British India, to try and drive people to see that, hey, I'm actually contravening my values by not being liberal enough, but this person's telling me how to really be liberal. Do you think that that kind of reform manoeuvre, working from within, is a use of political ideals that actually has political and practical consequences for people on the ground? You know, I, I would have, if you'd asked me that question a couple of years ago, I would have probably said yes, but I, uh, yeah. I'm increasingly disillusioned by that sort of view. Mm. Um, and probably what was a real turning point for me was I, for a period, was involved in the Referendum Council here in Australia to try to move towards recognition of Aboriginal people in the Constitution. And that reached its zenith with the um, Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was absolutely um, rolled gold liberal democratic document, that here were people excluded from the nation, written out of the Constitution, in fact, not even counted among the population, and yet asking for a place at the heart of the nation's founding document, to have a voice in the political process, 
that liberalism could work for us in spite of a history that, that shows it has not. And it was rejected. And it was rejected on the grounds that it wasn't liberal enough, that somehow the recognition of the rights of a group of people was antithetical to the founding principles of liberalism, that it was the rights of the individual. But we as individuals all belong to constituent groups. Um, some of them have their own political parties like the National Party or the Greens. Um, we all align ourselves with various identity groupings and our highest court in the land, the High Court has recognised that within our liberal democracy, Indigenous rights can coexist um, with the rights of other people, that native title can coexist with freehold title and uh, other forms of, of land title. Um, it's recognised the rights of that group as, a, as the first peoples of this country are recognised in our courts, in our law, and yet our politics struggle to deal with that. And I, you know, mm. there was a, a period of my life where I, I thought, you know, maybe liberal democracy, maybe this idea of working within the system, maybe an idea of appealing to the better angels of the nature, um, uh, appealing to the institutions of government, appealing to the public mm. would actually yield results. And, mm. and, you know, as Einstein tells us, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result is the definition of insanity. And I think I would be insane to believe still in the face of all of that evidence that liberal democracy can in fact deliver justice for Indigenous people in Australia. It has just failed. And I think Martin Luther King Jr., who had travelled on his own sort of philosophical journey from someone who stood there and said, you know, judge not by the colour of my skin, but the content of my character. The final sermon that he was meant to deliver um, before, but he was tragically killed just a couple of days before it, was titled, Why America May Go to Hell. Yeah. Um, he, had, he had been disillusioned. He had been... You know, he had lost that I, that faith in that American ideal because America had not delivered it himself. Itself, he had seen the folly of Vietnam. He said, "The bombs that go off in Vietnam will, will go, the bombs we drop in Vietnam will go off here," and they did in assassination and violence and protest. Um, he saw the left behind, the poor. He wanted to make common cause with the poor whites, the workers um, who were being cheated out of out of hope and dreams in their own country. So that American dream, by the time King um, was sadly assassinated, he had left that idea of the American dream well behind. And he saw the great enemies, if you like, of, 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 that, of, of achieving justice for African-Americans as the white liberals, mm. the white liberals who professed their support but actually did nothing. And I think here in Australia too, the white liberals who may march for reconciliation and, and lend their support to things like the Uluru Statement from the Heart, where were they when it was thrown in the bin? They weren't protesting outside Parliament House. Mm. So I, I, I really struggle with that. And, you know, I'm a, mm. it's part of my ongoing sort of journey to sort of grapple with what I see as being the redemptive uh, aspects uh, of, of liberalism. Mm with the harsh reality of its history and, and the obstinacy of its politics, that it cannot still find room for a proper recognition of the rights of people who have suffered the most in those societies. There's that 
speech that you give in the book or in UNIS at UNSW. Um, yeah. And it, it was the day of the Dylan Voller. Uh, oh, incident. my God. Yeah. And you walk in and you said, there's a speech I could have given. And I would yeah. have spoken about Burke. I would have spoken about Miller, yeah. about Rawls. And I would have talked about the better angels of our nature. But I'm going to yeah. finish instead with Lincoln's line from the second inaugural, which is a man sitting with his doubt. Yeah. Almost lost faith in the ideal, but ready to strive on and do what he can to bind up the can nation. We, can we bind up the wounds? Yep. And finish this this business. Yep. Do you still you know, feel that, do you still feel that? Yeah, well, you know, that that was amazing because I um you know I I, I it was uh you know the speech I was meant to give, mm. I'd written this speech and it was a speech of the head. Absolutely. Yeah. Made perfect sense to me. I could square the circle you know, liberalism and what it meant and how it, what the great liberal philosophers teach us and, you know, how that, how we can uh, accommodate those things in our own society and the arc of my own progress in my life as an exemplar of mm. change and how we can achieve these things in spite of our history. And then the night before I saw that Four Corners episode and I went, that's Australia. That's what Australia looks like. In spite of all the greatness of Australia and all of our achievements, Aboriginal kids with hoods over their heads being abused in a detention centre. That's what Australia looks like. After 200 plus years, that is Australia. And I sat down and I I think in about two hours, I wrote an entirely different speech. Yeah. The speech that just went to the heart of that. And, and I say in it, you know, there are people amongst my own who would criticise me for trying to make good with liberal democracy, for seeing the best in Australia. And as I said on that night, and right now on this night, after what has happened, I would say they are right. Mm. I am wrong to try to make amends or to try to make good on Australian liberalism because it fails us, continually fails us. So, you know, and, and, that, and then I cannot fully abandon that idea in spite of that. So I arrive at where Lincoln was and he says, yes, I see what we are tearing each other apart, the things we have done, what has happened to our, ourselves. And still I hold on to this idea. Can we bind up the wounds of this nation and finish this job? And what happened to Lincoln? He was killed. What happened to King? He was killed. You know, it, uh, it's, it, it, it dashes our hopes and our mm -hmm. dreams and, you know, liberalism is a hard place. Um, it fails us so often, and yet it is so tantalising in what it may offer us. And where does that leave you personally, Stan, as a final note? Because, I mean, in my, in my mind, you hold a similar position in our nation. You are one of the truth-tellers. I mean, you are the interpreting the nation to itself, as I said at the very start of this conversation. Where does that leave you personally? Do you want to continue to try and bind up the nation's wounds? Or do you think that what you really need now is to go away and write and reflect? What are you feeling? I guess without the intellectual, like where, where are you at? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, ultimately I do arrive at that place of, of peace because mm. I think that's what we should all be striving for. Mm. And that's what pulled me back from the precipice. You know, that idea of, yes, I live in that history, but I am mindful of where that history can lead because I've seen people who will kill for that history, mm. who drink from that toxic well of history. 
whether it's Islamist terrorists or, you know, that man who I won't name who murdered those Muslim people in prayer in New Zealand. Um, these people that drink from the toxic well of resentment. Um, I won't be that person. I'm fully aware of that resentment. I live in it, the anger that I can feel just pulsing through me, but I will not give in to that, that ultimately something must redeem us. It must. And I see it every day in little ways in the kindness and generosity of human beings. And I see it in my own people, Aboriginal people who have lost so much and suffered so much and never stop loving the country and never stop offering love and peace to Australia. You know, we're not blowing up buildings. We're not assassinating people, offering peace and love to Australia. That's who I am. That's where I sit. But I drag all of that other stuff around with me. And I also know that I write more clearly and I write more um, passionately and I think more persuasively when I am that writer of catharsis, mm. when I allow that anger to course through me and to fall onto that page and then to, to sit with that. And we need to sit with it. We need to sit with that truth. Not because it will heal us, not because it will reconcile us, but because it is true. And we need to ask, is our liberal democracy up to the task of meeting the ethical claims and challenges, of the legacy of that truth? Are we up to it? Because if we are not, liberal, liberal democracy will fall. It won't fall because China is more strong. It will fall because it is incapable of dealing with the ethical demands that are being placed on it from its own people, its own constituents. So that's really, for me, it's like a clarion call. It's, it's a warning. It's saying to people, you know, I've seen the worst. I come from the worst. I know what can be done to people. I know what it is like to carry that weight around with you. Here, let me unload some of that. Let me put this on a page. Let's sit with those ideas. Let's not turn away from them. Let's mm. confront them. and Let's ask them, what are we going to do about it? Mm. Well, Stan Grant, I want to leave on that note. I don't want to say anything more because that is, that's the man of catharsis. And I think that I will say one thing more. I think that, you know, Kant said from this crooked stick, nothing straight is yes. made. And what I think he was saying with that was, you know, we've got to be pragmatic. We've got to try. We've got to continue trying to bend that stick towards justice. And it's that notion of the moral arc of history is long but it bends towards justice, perhaps only if we continue to try to make it so. And, uh, yeah. and yeah. Um, you're honestly, Stan, your, your writing, your, your, your stories, your presence has been a continual faith restorer for me personally, growing up in Australia as a young man. And I thank you so deeply for, um, for coming on this conversation and speaking with me. This is a real, real honor. So thank you so oh, much. Stan. What, what you're doing here, Jack, is a really important thing. You know, mm. this is, uh, this is the sort of conversation we need to have in our society. It's such an honour to share this with you and to be able to have these big, big mm. conversations about ideas. Mm. We don't do this enough in the media. So full praise to you for doing this too. Thank you, Stan. Thanks so much.